0: Welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where PGA and LPGA players, legends, and the top instructors in the game share their insights and playing lessons. Join Chris every Tuesday night as he talks with the greats of the game. Tonight's show is sponsored by TaylorMade Golf. The PGA Tour Superstore, Golf Pride, Zexio, Sun Mountain Golf Bags, Finn Scooters, making the game more fun, Bionic Gloves, and the McLemore Club. Experience life above the clouds.
1: Now, here's your host, Chris Mascaro. My, how I've missed you. What's it, been? Four months? Seems like forever. I'm really happy to be back in the saddle with you again tonight. In the last few weeks, what have we seen? We've crowned a new players champion in Justin Thomas. We've learned that Bryson DeChambeau is not only a force to be reckoned with, but one day soon he may be putting for double legal. Lee Westwood, at nearly 48 years old, is showing the young guys, and the rest of us for that matter, that he's not done. Could this be his year to win a major? Perhaps next month at the Masters? Can't wait to find out. And Tiger Woods, perhaps the next driver he deals with should be the one he's handing his keys to. Good evening, folks, and welcome back to Next on the i I'm your host, Chris Mascaro. Tonight, we kick off season number seven of the show. This season, we're going to have more of golf's all-time greats, the top instructors in the game, and all of those folks here to share their stories and insights with you and to help you have more fun out on the golf course. I'm very proud to announce a new partnership this year with the LPGA Legends Tour. Their commissioner, Jane Geddes, has become a wonderful friend. So we're going to be bringing you some of the greatest ladies to ever play the game as well this season, starting with Jane herself, who will join me here in a couple of weeks. So we have an exciting new season ahead. And I couldn't be more excited to get things kicked off. Tonight we're going to have a lot of fun. Back with me is top instructor Tom Patry. TP has graciously agreed to continue joining me every other week. Again, this season. So we'll get more of TP's tips and insights. Tonight, we're going to talk about shaking the rust off of our golf swings after a long winter's nap. We're going to reflect back on the players championship. We'll look ahead to the masters. Plus, we'll hear which state needs to be on the lookout because TP's got a new summer home. Really looking forward to having Tom back on the show. He'll join me in just a few minutes. Following him, I'm going to get a visit from PGA Tour legend Hal Sutton. Hal's become a wonderful friend over the last year. Now, there isn't a guy better suited to talk about the Players' Championship than a guy who won it twice in different stages of his career. Howe first won the Players' Championship back in 1983, then did it again 17 years later in 2000 by a stroke over Tiger Woods. Folks, ever wonder what it would be like to stand on that 17th tee with a one-stroke lead in the golf tournament? And, oh, by the way, over Tiger Woods. Well, Howe did just that? And we're going to hear what that was like. He'll join me about 25 minutes from now. Then we're going to round out tonight's show with a return visit from a guy who's been with me almost from the very first episode of this show, and that's former PGA Tour pro Bob Friend. Bob first joined me on episode three back in April of 2014, and tonight's going to be his 15th appearance. That's the kind of guy and the kind of friend that Bob is. Bob recently shared a photo of himself playing with Mr. Palmer and Seve at what was then called the Bay Hill Invitational. Now we know it as the Arnold Palmer Invitational. But he played two rounds with those guys. We're going to hear what it was like to be in between those two legends, in particular, in the Kings tournament with the King. We'll talk about that and a whole lot more when Bob joins me, about 45 minutes from now. So there you have it, folks. More great stories, tips, and information are coming your way tonight on this opening edition of Season 7 of Next on the T. And thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me tonight. You guys know I always like to start off every show by saying hello to my friends Mitch and Matthew Lawrence and reminding you about their great shows. Mitch's podcast is called Talking Golf Getaways. Now, if you love golf and travel, there's no better podcast to marry those two things. Mitch and his co-host Darren Bunch are going to take you around the U.S. and Canada to the great courses that you can go stay and play out. Plus, they're going to let you know about some hidden gem courses that you might not know about. You can stream their podcast online at GolfTripX.com. It's also available on Audioboom, Stitcher, and Player.fm. You're going to love their show. They do an outstanding job. Matthew's show is called Backspin Golf. He's back from his hiatus. Now it's my regular Sunday morning, 8.03 a.m. Eastern Tea Time again. I never miss an episode because Matthew's fantastic. He always has great guests, like our good friend Keith Hursland, who joined him last Sunday. You can stream a show live by going online to WLXG.com or by downloading the WLXG app. If you happen to miss the show live, you can stream it as a podcast on their site as well, WLXG.com. Folks, tune in every Sunday morning. You're going to love the show. And, folks, this segment of Next on the Tee is brought to you by TaylorMade and their TP5 and TP5X golf balls. High draw? Check. Low fade? Check. Bump and run? Shot out of the sand? Flop shot, guess what? Check, check, and check. No matter what shot you need to pull off, there's one ball that's better for all of them, and that's the all-new TP5 and TP5X from TaylorMade. With a newly redesigned dimple pattern that decreases drag and increases lift, it's the number one ball in golf no matter what the shot is. So whether you need to hit it high over the trees, under or even through the trees, hit TP5 or TP5X, the one ball designed to handle it all. Check it out online at tailormadegolf.com, and you'll get more information on it there. All right, now back with me to kick off this season is one of the all-time greats. Not only instructors, folks, but people on the planet, and that's our resident director of instruction, Tom Patrick. You can visit Tom for a short time longer down in his winter home at Crown Colony Golf and Country Club in Fort Myers. He's also built a great indoor facility at his home in Naples with all the latest toys, technology, and gadgets. If you won't be anywhere near the West Coast of Florida but still want to get lessons from a legend like Tom, go ahead and download the V1 video app and send Tom videos of your golf swing and he can help you improve your swing through the app. You can also send him a question on his website, tompatry.com. Be sure to subscribe to his newsletter while you're on his site. Tom is also a member of the Titleist Leadership Advisory Board. He has a wonderful show of his own on Instagram Live with a tremendous guest list every week, but it's always fun having him here with me, on next on the tee tp how are you my friend christy boy
2: <laughs> there we go back
1: in the saddle
2: there we go my friend how are you tom i got a question for you how how long have we been doing this you and i together how long have you been putting up with me
1: wow this is the 45th show if that tells you i can't tell you the timeline but i can certainly tell you how many episodes it's been
2: you you have had me you've had me on this show forty five times?
1: Forty five times tonight, my friend.
2: You you clear you clearly are are struggling to find talent. That's 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 you know, <laughs> that that doesn't have <laughs> You gotta you gotta be better than this man. You gotta do be better than this.
1: Seriously. <laughs> seriously. I say that to myself quite often, but you know.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. So let me first <laughs> say that uh you know what a, what a lineup you have. You started out really slow with me tonight, then then Sutton coming on. Uh, I played some college golf against Hal. What a what an unbelievable talent he was. And and then Bob Friend holds a dear place in my heart. So please say hi to him. He's a, he's a good buddy of mine from a long time back. We had Bob Ford. So make sure you tell him hi for me.
1: Uh, absolutely will. So TP, remind us all about what's going on down there at Crown Colony and how things have been going for you down at Fort Myers you know
2: chris I, I think you talked about this a little bit at the end of the, end of the year last year and I just get rid of the start but it they, they really made me feel incredibly welcome never felt more welcome anywhere in my in my uh in my life i'm a I'm a big believer that most country clubs have the twenty percent we'll just we'll just paraphrase this uh twenty percent um non friendly factor we'll just call them a a something um you know <laughs> that percentage of the membership that you're not really fond of. I have not met one person on the property that I've been there since October 15th that I don't like. Not one person. Um, wow. Just a wonderful group of people. Yeah. Golf course is in tremendous condition. Paul Bacon, our superintendent, does an incredible job. Uh, everybody in the front of the house and the back of the house has just been so nice to me. Um, it, it's been a great store. I actually had a nine hole playing lesson tonight with a fella and, and, Kind of in the middle of it, it was just beautiful out there, and the golf course was in great shape. And I was like, "Man, how good is this? Let me just pinch myself." But it, uh Kent, the GM, does a great job. I, I real, I'm really happy there. I mean, I think I found the home. Um and this will probably be, uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, if I don't screw this thing up, this would be my swan song in Florida. Probably this will be the, the, you know, the back
1: nine. Wow! Very nice. Good for the good. All good yeah. for all the members there. And and just so we remind everybody, Tom. You don't have to be a member of Crown Colony, right, to get a lesson from Tom Patrick.
2: No, you don't. You don't have to be. It's based on availability, and just just by emailing me, and, and we'll find a way to get you in. But yeah, it's it's uh, I am I am privileged enough, and they've been kind enough to allow me uh, not to lose anybody um, that I that I had in my past book, and and if I have new people to come through, is it you know it's up to me to fit them in in an appropriate manner.
1: And Tom. Golf world's all abuzz, buzz, my friend. Rumor has it that the uh, folks up in Virginia need to be on high alert. What's coming up for you this summer?
2: I am. Uh, I'm really happy to announce that I've been asked to join the teaching staff at the Farmington Country Club in Charlottesville, Virginia, which is, as people might be familiar with, the home of the University of Virginia. Uh, Farmington Country Club, Chris, is a uh, is an old and storied place, a really, really cool place. Um, 1929 Fred Finley Golf Course, which is fantastic. They have a 10 hole. Cork Crenshaw practice course, uh, a huge two-acre short game area, five practice putting rings, a five-bay indoor-outdoor teaching building, um, 40 guest rooms on property, uh, a huge membership that is really golf crazy. And uh, I start there May 10th as my new summer home, uh, and I I couldn't be more excited and uh, more blessed to be asked to join that staff. So I'm really
1: excited about it. Yeah, congratulations, and congratulations to the people up in Virginia. They're getting the best. Tom, let's switch gears yeah, let's a little bit, my friend. Let's talk about some of the recent things that have been going on around the game of golf, and and i got to get your thoughts. Bryson DeChambeau, when I look Ooh. at the win at the Arnold Palmer Invitational and you look at how he did it, and I, I'm telling you, Tom, if if he hit, hits a couple of drives on six a little further to the left, and I think he did it just because he wasn't sure he could do it, but is going to be putting for double eagle at, at some point on that hole and some point on the PGA Tour. I just, you know, no one I don't think I, I, Mr. Palmer ever imagined, you know, looking at uh, from the sixth hole from the tee that it would ever be possible to drive it over the water to get to that green on the par five. But Bryson's going to do it one day. I, I I feel pretty certain. But your thoughts on Bryson DeChambeau and what you've seen from him in his game over the last several weeks?
2: Well, Chris, listen. I, I guess you can go. You can straddle the fence, or you can get on one side of the fence, or the other. And, and the two sides would be that it's it's incredibly entertaining. Uh, it's um, to me as a golf tourist, it's it's come a little bit of a circus act, um, and and I'm not sure I like the clown a whole lot. You know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm not really fond of clowns anyway. Um, and, and you're right. Mr. Palm would never imagine that somebody, you know, whipping it on that green. And I I think the only reason I would argue your double eagle putt is that's a really unusual circumstance in the design of that hole that that's a possibility. Um, uh, most par fives wouldn't lend you to taking a direct route. Um, it'd have to be a very, very unique situation. So I'm going to, I'm going to take the over on the possibility. You can take the under on the possibility of him putting for double eagle somewhere, and I'll take all your money you want on that bet. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just not, you know, I, I, I guess to be fair to everybody listening, Chris, I'm just a little bit too traditional and I, I don't like, I don't like where, where this is going now. I'm also not a guy that thinks you roll the ball back or change the equipment because I think that once the, once the, you know, the cow's out of the barn, it's hard to get the cow back in the barn. Um, if they were going to do something with the ball or with the club, they should have nipped this in the butt a long time ago. Um, we have to understand tradition on one side of the fence and marketing and viewership on the other side and ratings. And listen, that, that, that distance factor definitely sells and gets people to turn on the TV set. So I, I understand that from a business perspective, we're probably not going to turn this dude back too much. But um you know, you look at Rory. I know you want. You talked about that by text a little bit today. Rory yeah. chased his tail down down that rabbit hole, and now he regrets doing it. And, and I, I have to question a guy like Rory who hits it as good as he does, who drives the ball a long ways in his own right, trying to chase 10 more yards or 12 more yards or three more miles an hour or four more miles an hour. I think that's just a dangerous place to go. And the other thing I'll say is, although we're hearing his trainer say, no risk of injury, no risk of injury. I, I gotta put my, my chips on double zero black in Vegas and say, at some point, the body, uh, the lower thoracic spine, a shoulder, an elbow, a wrist, a knee it is not gonna do well with this pounding it's taking. And he, and he's a, a the, the clown tracks comes in when he gets on the tee and hits ball after ball after ball as hard as he can hit it, just trying to put on a show for the people behind the ropes. Um, at some point, I think we're gonna see him on a, Maybe on a stretch or coming off the range, and I hope, also, I don't wish that on anybody—not anybody—but I think you're walking a very, very, very
1: dangerous line there
2: um, with your body when you when you put your body under that much under that much stress that often.
1: Tom, let's take that piece about Rory uh, a half a step further, because this is something that's going to be a semi-theme of tonight. So I want to talk to Hal about it as well. But talk about the dangers, and this not just of Rory looking at Bryson, anybody. Right? Anybody in on your practice team anybody that might be looking at somebody who's a, a local club champion or whatever, when you start to look and emulate somebody else and you start to try to play their game instead of playing, you know, you hear it all the time, right, play within yourself, right? Talk about the dangers of doing that because when you're watching somebody else practice, they're, they're trying to practice on their game and their faults and their gaps and now you're trying to try to emulate that and you're trying to be somebody you're not that just seems like a recipe for destroying your own game
2: you know you know chris i i i i often think to myself how smart you really are you're a very smart man chris you really are um it's it's you know you're you're absolutely one thousand percent right on the mark you know i mean Tom Kite isn't Freddie Couples. Freddie Couples isn't VJ Singh. VJ Singh isn't JT, J, you know, Justin Thomas, and we can go on and on with that analogy. But um, I, I think that, you know, your body, your skill set, your, your individual makeup makes you, in fact, who you are. And, and you have some people are built with speed and some people are built with, you know, with precision. Very few are built with both, um, although, although both can be developed. So I think you get, you gotta be very careful when you go down that rabbit hole of trying to be somebody else. You know, people come to me all the time and say, I want to swing like Fred Couples. I said, really? Well, if your flexibility was about 200% better, you, you could probably do that. But, you know, otherwise, you know, you need to swing, swing like Mr. Smith or Mr. Smith. Um, I, I think that's just a, just a dangerous place. So we watched, we watched Ian Baker Finch destroy his career trying to become, you know, a little longer. I and mean, we, we can document a lot of guys going down that rabbit hole and didn't come back out. You know, Wayne Levy did it way before that. Um it, it's it's just a dangerous it's just a dangerous place to go.
1: Tom, before we get off the the Players Championship, I uh, wanted to get your thoughts on what you saw from from JT and really just about the Players Championship itself. I mean, forever it's sort of been the, you know, the you want know, to call fifth major. It's right? sort of like the fifth beetle. Is is the Players the, the fifth best? Is it the fourth best? Is it, is it better to win the players than, than, uh, maybe say a PGA championship? What, what's your thought? A on Justin Thomas's win and B on the players championship's place amongst the elite tournament.
2: You know, I, I get, in, I got in a lot of trouble a couple of years ago, Chris, with my peers, uh, when I called the, the, the players championship the fourth major ahead of the PGA. And one of the reasons I cited that. Was that, you know, the PGA championship puts in X number of club pros every year. I think it's, I think the number now is 20. Um, so you let in 20 club professionals who are, listen, they're very fine players in their own right as club professionals. They're not tour players. Okay. And let's make no mistake about it. They're very fine players in their own right as club professionals. They're not tour players. Uh, so do you, by doing that, do you weaken the field considerably. Uh, I think the answer is yes. And, and then you put the best and strongest field of the year opposite that at, at the tournament players championship on what is becoming an iconic golf course, a traditional venue every year, much like the Masters is the same venue every year. Uh, one of the richest tournaments in the world. Um, and, and does it, does it, move, you move it ahead of the PGA championship? Well, I think tradition is a hard thing to change, but in my mind, it is the fourth major. And the PGA championship is, in fact, the fifth major. In terms of Justin Thomas's performance, you know, when you get to Sunday and you go, you make birdie on nine, birdie on 10, eagle on 11 and birdie on, on 12 and you run that string of, of subpar holes in a row right in the jaws of the fourth round on that golf course. That tells me a lot about who you are as a player. Um, i I was, listen, I'm, as, as a 62 year old, I'm the big Lee Westwood fan at 47. Um, but I, I have a lot of admiration for JT, uh, especially what's gone in, his, gone in his life in the last six months with the polo situation with his grandpa, um, and, and, and you know some personal situations. To so be able to get on that golf course on that kind of pressure on, on Sunday, and hit the shots he hit coming down the stretch, I, I hats off to him. And that was a, that was a great win. That was a great win.
1: And I couldn't agree with that more. Um and I'm a big JT fan and and I I was so happy to watch him win and for all for all the reasons. I'm a fan of his because of his grandfather, his his family is tremendous, his father's a heck of a heck of a player, heck of a coach, heck of an instructor. Um but let me play a little devil's advocate here, T P. The shot the tee shot he hit on eighteen. That you know, kind of banana hook, right? And it hey, he made it work. It worked on 18. It worked, you know, on, on some of the other holes that he played. I saw him, you know, hit that shot a few times. But let's, let's play out the, the, I don't, you know, call it the, the opposite side, the negative side, what have you. That ball runs in the water and he, he narrowly missed it. I don't, even he, you know, jokingly after he hit the shot, when he walked up to the shot, couldn't believe, you know, like, wow, that was close. That ball goes in the water. It's a different conversation. And, I, you know, is, is he a hero for hitting the shot? Is he, you know, wow, that took a lot of cool to hit that shot and pull it off. You know, I, or do we sort I, of I, we sort of wonder, what the heck are you doing hitting that shot if it goes in the water?
2: Yeah, I mean I think you can look at that both ways because I think that, you know, looking back, I mean, with his length, he could probably have hit a more conservative club off the tee and, and laid it out to the right and, and easily hit a, a mid-iron or even a borderline 7, 8-iron into that green. And played the whole different you know, your adrenaline's pumping. You look back and you say, What if? Um you know, you can you can say what if all day long, here's the bottom line, it didn't go underwater, he won the golf turn, case closed, move on to next week. Um, I don't think he was trying to obviously turn the ball I think he was trying to turn the ball over, but not that much obviously. That got away from him a little bit and he got a break. Uh Freddie Freddie Couples got a break on number twelve at Augusta one year. We and you know Right. Uh you know, we we can document a lot of these situations. Those things happen and you get those breaks when it's your turn to win, you know, when it's your turn to win, um, the bounces go your way. And it's clearly his time to win uh, that, you know, next time he makes that swing, maybe that ball takes two hops to the left that goes in and, and Lee Westwood wins a tournament at 47 years old. Um But that's that's ancient history now.
1: And let's stay with Lee Westwood. Here's a guy that's been in the final group the last two weeks. Had a, had a couple opportunities to win. Putter sort of let him down late in the rounds. But 47 years old, as you point out, almost 48. We're a few weeks shy of the Masters. Is Lee Westwood warming up to uh, to become the oldest Masters champion? What do you think about what you're seeing from him? And could he pull it off on a Sunday?
2: Well, I'm, first of all, I'm a big Lee Westwood fan. and So before I get critical, I, I got to tell you, I was, I was pulling from the Bay Hill really hard. Um, and I was pulling from, you know, at, uh, at TPC really hard. Um, you know, he, he, he made some comments in his interviews on Golf Channel leading up to the last round, how he's having so much fun and they are just going to have, go out and have fun. And he was very lighthearted about it. And we saw him make a couple of swings early in the last round. After he buried one, he makes a horrific fix on par five number two. And then. On number four, he looked like about a 16 handicap playing number four, and Bryson's popping it off the tee. He's hitting it dead right. He's he, he makes a great one putt to save five there. So obviously that lightheartedness kind of went away real quickly. Um You know, the pressure of Sunday and a tournament of that magnitude, I don't care how lighthearted you think you're trying to be, you can forget that nonsense because there's no way you're strolling around there whistling Dixie. Um, and you certainly know, Chris, what the Masters means to these guys. You've been there enough. You've watched it up close, and so have I. And and I, you know, I have a friend that won that golf tournament. So sun, Sunday at Augusta is not, you know, a time to be lighthearted. So can he do it? Yeah, well, he's he's proven in majors how close he's been several times, how good of a player he is. But you know, Sunday at Augusta is not is not a scroll in the park. Um, he's driving the ball really overall pretty pretty nicely. His iron play looked pretty good except for a few swings. He's putting the ball better than he's putted it in years. Um, and his head seems to be in a pretty good place. Is it possible? It, it's really possible. What, am I putting my money on League Westwood or Augusta? Well, pr- probably not. It, would it be a great story for golf? It would be an incredible story for golf. Incredible story. But uh there's a lot of guys playing good right now that I'd probably put ahead of him.
1: Tom, let's switch gears a little bit, and I want to get a a playing lesson or thought from you. For a lot of the country, those of us that live north of the border of uh, Florida, it's just now starting to warm up a little bit. Uh, We can start to think about uh, breaking our golf clubs out and sort of getting the rust off of our golf swings. What are some things that we should do so that uh, we don't ingrain bad habits uh, but we really start off fresh and, and limber and ready and uh preparing ourselves to play our best golf ever.
2: Well, yeah, it, it has been chilly up there. I mean, it was chilly here. It, got, it only got to 82 here today, Chris, so we're struggling <laughs> down here, but we're, 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 coming out of, we're coming out of the freeze here slowly. We'll be okay. So if you haven't been out here, I'm, I want to say two words, all the people up north, jet blue. Okay. Now, as far as coming out of the uh, winter, um, if you're waiting for right now to start doing your preparation for this golf season coming up from north and you've been sitting around till now, the first thing I'll tell you is you've been sitting around way too long. You should have been swinging, you know, uh, an orange whip or a weighted club of some kind, or maybe made even your own golf club indoors, just making swings. You should have been doing that, you know, since last season ended. Um, I'm not a big fan of cramming for the new season, so... Most of my folks up north have been in touch with me via V1, as you know, via my online academy. They've been hitting golf balls indoors, neither in a dome, in an indoor net, and I put a net in their garage, you know, somewhere in a high ceiling area in their homes, um, gone to a heated range, uh, a, lo- a local help code with the gym. They've been making swings somewhere already. They've also been. You know, putting indoors, uh, either you know, on a, on a perfect practice putting matter or something of that sort, uh, to keep their feel alive. See, so, you know, it, it's so hard to sit, put the club in the closet for five months straight and then take them out and think you're going to put your game together. It's going to be, if you've done that, if you put the clubs away since last October, say it, it's going to be June or July before you feel comfortable over the golf ball at, at best especially if you're a weekend warrior. So I pray to God that's not what you guys have done out there that are listening. Um, there should be a daily stretching routine. You know, your hamstrings, your hip flexors, your quads, your glutes, your pectoral muscles, your rotor, your scapular, uh, all those types of things should be, be, you know, be elongated on a daily basis. Your pliability and flexibility is so important to getting the season started right. So if you do have to cram, I, I suggest you get after it as soon as you turn this podcast off and get going because you're, you're running late right now already uh, on March 16th for, let's say, an April 15th uh, green light and go. Um, but those are the very least things you should be doing. And, you know, every time the weather breaks a, a, an ounce right now, don't worry about running to the first tee. Do worry about getting to a range and getting reps in. You know, 18 holes of golf is not a lot of reps because you're not really hitting the same shot or making the same motion over. And you need to get to a range. And you need to get reps under your belt right now. You need to get the putter in your hand and get your feel moving and get your pliability and flexibility online and moving.
1: Tom, let's uh, let's start talking about your show. I know um, you recently had Charlie Meacham on the show, and I was blessed to have Charlie a couple of times last season as part of the show. Um, a better storyteller you will not find. Talk about no. uh, your conversation with Charlie and your relationship for that sure. matter.
2: Actually, so the relationship started in 1993. The winter of 1993, Chris and I taught at, uh, Loxahatchee in Jupiter, Florida, a Jack Nicklaus golf course, a really fine golf course, actually. Uh, one of Jack's better early clubs, because some of them were not so great. That one is actually really good. And Charlie was a member there and he and his wife befriended me. The nicest people on the planet, possibly. Uh, we've stayed in touch through his years as commissioner of the LPJ tour. He was commissioner. while I had, uh, uh, five girls out there I was coaching at the time. And, uh, we got to be friendly during his tour, his tour, his years as commissioner of the, of the LPJ tour. Uh, we've stayed in touch off and on ever since. Uh, he obviously later in his career, uh, after his, um, tour, his, uh, LPJ stint ended, he was, I don't know if many people know this, he became Arnold Palmer's business advisor. Um, and, uh, was kind of responsible for me meeting Arnold and spending some time around him. Uh, and actually, it wasn't my show that he was on he I was on his podcast as a matter of fact. that's what that was chris and uh he invited me on um just a just a gentleman uh you know law degree from Yale Law School, partner in a huge law firm in the midwest um a very bright articulate man ha had four really big time corporate gigs in his career um that he passed through on his journey. Uh, just a very insightful guy, a very pleasant man, uh, really low ego factor. Uh, he's definitely a giver, not a taker. Um, and, and just, you know, a, a quiet part of my golf journey that I've, I've been blessed with to know him. Um, a wonderful human being. And you know that Chris, because you, you, you've talked to him
1: before. Right. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. Charlie's fantastic. Tom, before I let you go, remind our listeners how they can stay up to date with all the great things you're doing, your website, how to follow you on social media, and um, and your Instagram live show.
2: So, Chris, I've taken a little hiatus in my Instagram live show because I've got all these obligations, like Next on the Tee, and, and Farmers and Country Club, <laughs> and, and Crown Colony, and uh, and I've actually tried to resurrect my golf game a little bit recently. I'm actually just about to start. Playing a little bit, I'm going to try to qualify in a, a week or two for the Florida Senior Open, and then I've actually put my entry in. Uh, and no laughing, please. I put my entry in to qualify for the U.S. Senior Open in uh, at the Homestead on June 7th uh,
3: in West Wow. Wow.
2: Um, yeah, just you know, I just I, I just miss it so much, Chris, and I want to play a little bit. And um am at 62. I'm a little long in the tooth, but and I don't have any grand expectations, but I, I want to play a little bit, and, and I'm going to try to. Scratch and claw and find anything I get to play in. Uh, yeah, I'd like to play five or six events here and there during the course of the year. So there's two right there. And then I'll come back. I know in October, I'll play in the Naples Senior Open down here, which is a three day event, which gets a really strong statewide field. I got to find two or three more in between somewhere, but, uh, I'm trying to spend some more time. So the Instagram live show was put on the the shelf for a little while. I've had four or five guys that want to, want to do some things, but, uh, I'm going to probably take that in the future from, once a week to maybe once or twice a month. Uh, I'm doing one right now on the 28th of this month. So anybody that's listening, please tune in. It's kind of a little you know, special show I'm doing with some surprises coming. Um, but, you know, all the regular social media stuff. My website is TomPatry.com, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, uh, all those regular places. And, and, of course, the website is just, like I said, TomPatry.com. I'm looking forward to this Farmington Country Club gig starting May 10th. Um, I'm going to hit the ground running up there from what I understand. I I think uh, it's going to be a really uh, busy summer there. Um, I'm pretty excited about the Final Four coming up. I'm pretty excited about the Masters coming up. I'm pretty excited to talk to Chris Mascaro tonight. So a lot of great things going on.
1: Ah, Good for you, TP. My friend, I can't thank you enough for uh, being generous with your time tonight and for joining me for another season. Every other week. It gives me something to look forward to as a special part of the show, and you're a special man to do it. I appreciate you, my friend. Well,
2: you know, pal, you know how much I love being on with you. You know how much I think of you in this show and, and all you do for golf. So you're gonna, you're gonna kill it all season as you always do. You, you do an unbelievable job for us in golf, and uh, any any of us that come on a regular basis, you know, we love you very much, and we only wish you the best, pal.
1: Ah, same right back to you, my friend. TP, stay safe out there, my friend. We'll catch up in a couple of weeks.
2: Peace, brother. Talk to you soon.
1: See you, Tom. That's a great Tom Patrick. TomPatrick.com is his website, P-A-T-R-I. Fantastic. His show is on, on Instagram Live is always a lot of fun. He's got a lot of great guests. Uh, and TP is just uh, one of the top instructors in the game. Folks, if you're anywhere near Naples or Fort Myers, I encourage you to go go see Tom. And if, uh, if you're up in the Virginia area, you're going to get to see him in a couple of months. Definitely worth your time. Tom's going to get your game to the next level without a doubt. All right, before I get to my next guest, Hal Sutton, I want to give a shout out to one of our new sponsors, Squares Golf. Are you like me, always considering new golf equipment, maybe a new driver? I'll tell you what, let me reset your thinking because I discovered Squares Golf Shoes. The patented square toe provides balance, stability, and a wider base for increased connection to the ground, effectively increasing your swing speed by 2.2 miles per hour an average of nine yards of distance. Independent tests prove it. That's right. It's proven in science. Go to squares.com. That's dot com and get Squares 30-day money back guarantee. Use promo code DISTANCE for $20 off. Remember, distance comes from swing speed, and swing speed comes from your connection to the ground. And folks, I wouldn't tell you about it if I didn't experience it for myself. I've never felt more stable in my golf swing which allows me to swing faster and launch it further. Squares, the distance golf shoe. I also want to give a shout out to another new sponsor, Bionic Loves. Do what you do better with Bionic Gloves. Whether you're looking to own the golf greens, improve your workouts, or get your hands dirty in the garden, Bionic Loves has you covered. Designed with a hand specialist, Bionic Loves feature patented innovations that help improve your grip. The strategically placed anatomical relief pads also prevent calluses and blisters, while the web and motion zones allow for greater dexterity and flexibility. Head over to BionicLoves.com to find the perfect glove to up your game. And this segment of the show is sponsored by our friends over at the PGA Tour Superstore.
2: This segment of the show is brought to you by the PGA Tour Superstore. See why
0: golfers everywhere are proud to call PGA Tour Superstore their golf pro shop. Visit them online at
2: PGATourSuperstore.com. Now back to Chris and more of the show.
1: All right, now back with me is a guy who's become a wonderful friend over the last year and whose insights on this show on Twitter through his own new podcast, which is called Be the Right Podcast Today, which is fantastic, folks. You can watch and subscribe to it on us YouTube page, Hal Sutton Golf Academy. And you can give Hal a, a follow on Twitter at Hal Sutton Golf. And for those of you who haven't joined me before when Hal's been a part of the show, and you may not remember how great a career Hal Sutton had on the golf course. Let me remind you, 1980 College Golf Player of the Year, won 14 college golf tournaments, was a two-time All-American, led centenary to the NCAA Tournament, was a two-time Trans-American Athletic Conference Player of the Year, won the 1980 U.S. Amateur Championship, turned pro in 81, got his first win in 82 at the Walt Disney World Classic in a playoff over Bill Britton. That year was named the TOUR's Rookie of the Year. 1983, he was named the PGA Player of the Year after winning the Players' Championship for the first time and then the PGA Championship. 1998, he won the TOUR Championship here in Atlanta. 2000, he won the players for a second time, this time by one stroke over uh, Tiger Woods. He captained the 2004 U.S. Ryder Cup team. He backed up his 14 wins in college with 14 more wins on the PGA Tour. I have that he finished 18 times, had 135 top 10s, 239 top 25s. The guy should definitely be in the World Golf Hall of Fame. But I'll tell you what, I am honored and privileged to have him back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey Hal, how are you my friend?
3: I'm great, Chris. Thanks for uh having me on and I was having a down day till you read all that stuff and made me feel a little better about my life. <laughs> Thank you for that. You definitely be there.
1: That's right. You should be sticking your chest out a little bit, my friend. You certainly earned the right to do that. Well, um,
3: I, I, my
1: mother tries to keep
3: me humble and my wife does, but uh, anyway, you just built me back up. Thank you, Chris.
2: Absolutely, Hal.
1: So, my friend, I, w- I want to start by congratulating you on your podcast. I'll tell you, be the right podcast today. You and uh, and Chase Cooper, who's an instructor with you there at your academy, you guys do a great job. I've loved watching you know, you get to watch your podcast because there's video as well and it's over on your YouTube channel. Talk about your show.
3: Well, it's been fun. You know, we tried to make it a little bit different. We. We did the first seven or eight where it was just Chase and I talking about things that were important to us. And, uh, you know, we had our first guest last week, which was Peter Jacobson, who's been a longtime friend and he was great. Uh, you know, he's funny. He's, uh, he's truthful. He's, uh, he's just a great guy. And uh, it was fun to get back and spend time with him. Uh, this week, our guest is Brad Faxon. So, uh, you know, we're going to try to have some of my peers on there, uh, talking about golf and what's important to them.
1: Hal, I, I, I want to switch gears because there's, there's so many great things that you've been involved with over the course of over your career. And I recently watched a video about your longtime caddy, Freddie Burns, and the relationship that, That you and your family had with Freddie. Do you mind sharing the story about how he became your caddy? No,
3: not at all. He, uh, you know, Freddie used to watch me in high school, and uh, he would come up to me after I finished, and he said, "How you're going to make it on the tour one day? And when you do, I want to be your caddy." And you know, that was kind of cool for a guy to say that to a guy in high school. And, uh, I would tell my dad about this guy and he was good. Freddie was a good player. And so my dad called him out of the blue one day and he said, you know, I really want you to come up here and visit with me about how. So he said, well, Mr. Sutton, I don't have a car. And he said, well, okay, you take a taxi and I'll pay the taxi when you get up here. So my dad, he picked a time and Freddie, uh, went to see my dad and, um, he said, you know, Hal's been telling me what all you've been talking about. He said, I'd really like for you. He said, I knew you caddied for a while at a straightforward country club. He said, I'd like for you to work for Hal for a, a while. He said, I'll pay you for doing this. And, uh, let's just see where this goes. He said, you know, Hal could you use some help. And, uh, so anyway, long story short, uh, he said, well, Mr. Sutton, that'd be great, but he said, I don't have a car. He said, well, go look out the window out there. He said, I, I got a car for you. And, uh, so anyway, he, my dad gets in this car, and he works for me through college, basically, just watching me hit balls and shagging balls and catting for me while I was playing and, you know, talking to me about, you know, risk-reward and things like that. And uh so when I finished college and got ready to turn pro, you know, there Freddie was with me. We were already familiar with each other, and knew what to expect out of each other, and and we went on the rest of the way. And, uh, you know, it was a, he'd been a friend, you know, forever. And uh, he just lost his wife recently, which was really very sad. But uh, Freddie's still cat in out on the Champions Tour. You know, when I quit, he said, Well, I, He said, This is my life. This is all I know. And I said, Well, Freddie, keep going. I said, I know somebody out there will hire you to, you, you've got a lot of wins under your belt, you know, and, so Tom Pernice hired him, and he's still going, and uh, 69 years old, still carrying a bag.
1: Hal, talk about his belief in you and how important that was for you.
3: Well, Freddie, you know, Freddie believed in me. There's no doubt about that. You know, he he thought I was uh, a great driver of the ball. He thought I was a really good iron player, and he pushed me to win. You know, he didn't push me. You know, every time I got close to winning, he was pushing me win. He wasn't pushing me to, let's make a check. And, you know, you, this last weekend was a great example of that. You know, people don't remember who finishes second in the golf tournament. They, they remember who wins. And I don't know if everybody noticed or not, but everybody except Harmon hit away from the pin on uh number 17. You know, I was really shocked. I mean, Lee Westwood doesn't need the money or anything else. He needs a win, but he had it the middle of the green. He should have gone right for that flag, regardless of the, if he hit it in the water or anywhere else. He needed the win. And when he aimed it at the center of the green, said, that's good enough. A second's good enough. And, you know, if I had a son, anybody out there listening, you know, you got to play to win. And that's the only thing people really remember and if the tour has a downside to what they've done, is they promoted making money instead of winning championships.
1: And it's, it's interesting you say that because one of my favorite stories about Jack Nicholas was he said he always played for the title and the trophies because when you win those, the money will come. It's, it almost seems like it may be a little bit of the inverse to that now that true
3: well Tiger Woods when he came out there he said I play to win and it offended a lot of people you know he was young he hadn't learned yet people thought well you don't respect the game enough these people are really good and Tiger you know admittedly said you know they are but I am too and I play to win and I'm gonna win and he spent his whole life doing that and you know, you got to respect people like that. That was hard to listen to to begin with, but you know, fifty percent of the people loved that, and fifty percent of the people didn't like that. And didn't show he didn't think he was showing the proper respect for the people that had come in front of him. But I, I tell you, we all admire winners, and um you know, seventeen this last week is a great test of what do you want out of the game, and I, that's why I think that's one of the great holes in golf coming down the stretch do you have enough guts to aim it at the flag? And anyway.
1: Yep. I understand. Um, and it's interesting that you make, uh, make both of those points Hal, because one thing that Mr. Nicholas always said and another, and I've had the privilege of, of spending some time with Mr. Player is the the ability to win a major. We've heard Mr. Nicholas say this a lot, right? The, only, there's only a few guys that think they're capable of winning a major. And you can, when, you know, they actually may be the easiest ones to win because there's only a handful of guys you have to beat. Is that what you observed throughout your career, too?
3: Well, majors are hard to win because of the significance of the event itself and all the importance from the media side and from everybody's side. You know, I mean,. To be honest with you, the Masters should be one of the easier tournaments to win because of the field size. And, uh, but yet it's super hard to win. And, you know, I never had a good record at uh, Augusta at all, played in a lot of them, but never, ever felt comfortable at Augusta. And I think there's been a lot of other people that felt that way. Trevino never felt comfortable at Augusta one of the greatest players that ever hit a golf ball right there. And, uh, you know, I guess on some hands you'd say they're easy to win, but on others, I found them pretty hard. The U.S. Open never very easy to win. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Hal, I want to get back to, um, to Freddie and, and you talked about how he, he said that, you know, you were a great driver and, there's a story about, and I've heard you tell it, and I hope you'll, you don't mind sharing it again on uh, on this show, but when you are walking off from the 17th green over to the 18th tee in 2000, Freddie said something to you that may also help you poke your chest out a little bit, made you feel a little bit better. Talk about what uh, your conversation with Freddie was during that long walk between the 17th green and the 18th tee.
3: Well, the minute I hold out on 17, Tiger had to make about a eight or 10 foot birdie, a par putt to tie. And then I had to make about a three footer, a par putt. And so Tiger walked off in front of me and Freddie stuck the pin in and we're walking off together. And it's kind of interesting because the crowd is a long ways from you because of the island green. So, you know, the things that he and I were talking about weren't heard by anybody else. Uh, and nor were they impaired by the noise of other people. So he started telling me as soon as we walked off the green, How are you the greatest driver of the ball? You know, you are. You've got to drive it on this next hole. Cause I'd hit three wood the first three days. And, <clears throat> you know, which was a better play, it was a safer play. And, uh, but he knew that I needed to have the last shot in to, uh, you know, he knew Tiger was going to probably hit his stinger two iron and and I could not hit his stinger two iron with my three wood. So he was encouraging me to hit driver and he was building me up at the same time to believe in myself to do it. And you know, that's just who Freddie was and what Freddie stood for. And I had my mind on the driver anyway, but it's great when your caddy is supporting that. There was no difference of opinion there. And So you can, you know, when you pull the driver out, we, both of us, both the decision makers in that game believed in that. And that's, you know, 100% into
1: it. I want to get your thoughts, not necessarily on this past weekend's players tournament, but more um, mindset because we've heard about Rory and uh, him potentially trying to make some changes to a swing, swing a little bit faster get a little more ball speed because he wanted to catch up with Bryson DeChambeau. And then we saw Rory, you know, you go back a couple of weeks, we saw Rory put two balls in the water on six at Bay Hill, trying to hit it over the lake like Bryson did. Then he he comes to the players and he misses the cut after shooting 79-75. And and Rory was already one of the longest drivers on tour. I mean, he led the the tour in driving. He may be a little bit behind Bryson now. But I believe I've heard you talking about, The dangers of watching someone else practice and then trying to do what they do. Talk about why that's a bad thing.
3: Well, I felt for a while that Rory wasn't being Rory. I felt he was trying to be what the world wanted him to be. And, you know, for a while now, everybody's been talking about he's not playing like he's is capable of playing, and that's been talked about, about a lot of people. You know, so I don't really pay a lot of attention to that, but I just got the sense that Rory was beginning to buy into it. And, uh, you know, I made the statement about a month ago to Chase, and I really feel like Rory is trying to be somebody who's not. And uh when he came out this last week, and I mean – Michael Breed had me on his show, and he asked me, he said, what would you tell Rory if he walked in to your academy right now? If he said, what, what would you do? I said, Rory, I'd tell him, Rory, you need to put your phone away. You need to put social media away. You need to quit buying in and carrying what the rest of the world thought. You need to accept the brand that you are, who you are, be the best of who you can be, and string one good shot on top of another good shot on top of another good shot, and before too long, your confidence level will be so high. And, of course, Michael Breed said to me, he said, well, how, you know, when you played, there wasn't social media and all this sort of stuff. And do you realize how hard that is? And I said, well, I didn't say it was easy, but this is one of the best players in the world. And so then he asked me about Bryson DeChambeau right behind that. And I said, you know, it's interesting, Michael, that you do that that you asked me about Bryson DeChambeau because he's doing exactly what I just told you Rory needed to be doing. <laughs> he's told the Godfathers, I don't care what you think. I'm going to do this my way entirely, regardless of what you think. And guess who the world's watching right now? Bryson's the mm-hmm. number one show in the game. So, you know, if, if Rory's listening and if he cares at all, What anybody else thinks, I think he should become who he is, become his own brand, who he is. Don't follow anybody's lead. You set the mark on what people follow.
1: And I couldn't agree with that more. Now, now let's, let's take that a half a step further, Hal, because I don't think it's just Rory McElroy, right? I mean, that's anybody. I would, I would assume if you had a junior golfer coming in, and you're out on the practice tee, you're coming into your academy, and, and that person becomes enamored with the person next to them and trying to emulate what they're doing, then you're just sort of losing sight of yourself. You're becoming someone else, and you're becoming someone that you're not. Isn't that a danger just for all of us?
3: Everybody out there, today my tweet was, do you know your brand? Are you figuring out what your brand needs improving on and how you need to change it? Or if there, what are the changes that are needed? You know, everybody needs to know who they are, who their fingerprint is, who their thumbprint is, and become that, remain that, improve upon that, but not try to change it entirely.
1: How one more before I let you go and, and, uh, on your show, I heard, uh, you and Chase talking about positioning on the, on the practice range, even for guys at your level on the PGA tour. Some guys are going to stand on the left, and some guys are going to stand down on the right. And there's sort of a a pecking order and a reason why the guys that are there that are on the left, and there's a reason why the guys are there are on the right. Do you mind sharing that?
3: Well, it's not always the case, but I will tell you this. The majority of the people on the PGA Tour and in golf are right-handed players. And that means that the further left you walk, everybody's back is to you. And when you don't believe in yourself, those people walk to the left. And when you believe in what you're doing, those people walk to the right because you want people to see what you're capable of. And, you know, there was a time in my life when I'd walk as far to the left as I could because I was ashamed of how I was hitting the ball. And, you know, it's all part of what we've been talking about, Chris. It's all part of, you know, taking care of your business instead of everybody else's business. And, um, you know, I, I wouldn't call it a pecking order, so to speak. It's just who you believe you're, you are at the time.
1: Now, one more before I let you go. And uh, I want to dip one more time back into the, to the 2000 players, because I think most of us, when we look at, and we're watching it on TV, one of the scariest shots for everybody is being on that TN on 17. Now, Let's ramp that up about a thousand percent and you've got a one stroke lead in the tournament in the final round and you're playing against Tiger Woods. What's it like trying to draw that club back on that hole in that situation? I
3: faced that hole twice in my life when I was, had a chance to win.
1: 1983
3: was a completely different set of circumstances. It was about five or six of us tied for the lead. And I hit the ball at the flag, hit it six inches and separated myself from the people because why I wanted to win. I didn't want to finish second. So then fast forward to 2000, I was in a different set of circumstances. I had a one shot lead and tiger was the trailer trying to catch me. And when he teed off, he hit it right at the flag. He was trying to win. And he actually didn't hit it very good, and it barely cleared the water. It was actually just barely over the piling and into the deep rough. And of course, I didn't have anything to prove. I had a one-shot lead, so I hit it in the center of the green with about a 25-foot putt for par. And as you could see this last week, that's not an easy two putt. I, I I hit as good a putt as I could hit, and still went about three feet by. And you know, which those are knee knockers when you're trying to sustain the lead. But anyway, uh you know, when you get to that point, you're trying to win a golf tournament. And I'm not sure that that shot was any different than any other time because it was just, as far as I was concerned, it was me and Freddie and Tiger and Stevie, his caddy. Well, that's all that was out there. It was just us duking it out with each other. So, you know, I, I never tried to look at the size of the enormity of what I was trying to do. I tried to stay in the moment the best I could. And uh, fortunately, I was able to there.
1: How, before I let you go, remind our listeners about your wonderful academy down there in Houston. Uh, again, about your podcast and how they can stay up to date with all the great things you're doing.
3: Well, it's House and the golf, uh, all the way around, and the uh, Be the Right Club Today podcast. Um and you can get that on, you know, Apple, Spotify, YouTube. Uh, you know, we're just Chase and I are just doing what we know how to do, which is love the game and love the people that we're trying to help. And uh, you know, if you get in the Houston area and you want to come by and see us, uh we're very near a Champions Golf Club and uh, uh love to help anybody that comes around.
1: How I can't thank you enough for coming back and be a part of the show. Um, you're a treasure, my friend, and uh, it has been a huge blessing getting to know you over the last year and, and watch as you've grown that academy and and uh, obviously now doing the, a wonderful job on the podcast. And, and I can't thank you enough for what you've meant to me in this show. You're, uh, you're a true well, treasure, my friend.
3: Well, thanks, Chris. And, you know, uh, for all those that don't know, Chris is so good to everybody that comes on his show, and he's so kind and so grateful and humble. And uh I'm always a, a yes at the other end of the phone when you when you call and ask, Chris.
1: Well, I appreciate that very much, Hal. Thank you again for tonight and uh, and everything you do, and I look forward to catching up with you again, hopefully real soon.
3: Okay. Take care, Chris.
1: Stay safe. See you, Hal. That's a great, Hal Sutton. Play to win. I love how he how he put that. You know, I mean, we've heard that forever. But to hear it in the stories and in, you know, what you need to do in order. If you you don't want to be second, here's what you need to do to be first. And uh, Hal certainly did that a bunch throughout his career. And uh, a more first-class individual, folks, you will not find than Hal Sutton. All right, before I get to my next guest, Bob Friend, I want to give a shout-out to our friends over at Golf Pride. Folks, did you know that Golf Pride was your favorite team while also using the number one grip in golf? Your team, your grip, MCC Hybrid Grips, the number one grip series worldwide, features an exclusive brushed cotton cord in the upper hand for all-weather performance with a premium rubber in the lower hand for added feel. The new MCC Team Series is available in a variety of new color combinations that is going to let you rep your favorite team when you're out there on the golf course. And the grips are available in standard and midsize. Go online to check it out for yourself and see how you can rep your team while you're out there playing the game. Go on to golfpride.com. All right, now, folks, back, and I'm honored to say this, and making his 15th appearance with me is one of my all-time favorite guests, and that's Bob Friend Jr. You know, folks, you hear people say he or she is an all-timer. But you know what? Bob Friend is an all-timer on this show. He first joined me all the way back in April of 2014 on episode number three of the show. Now, why is that important? Well, he agreed to come on a show he never heard of with a guy he never heard of. Now, that's a pretty great thing to do for a guy who's launching his his first podcast. Now, 14 shows later, he's still coming back on, which I couldn't be more grateful for. When you want to know about Bob Friend, and, and like I say, you you just heard me talk about the individual. Let me talk about the guy that played on the golf course. First of all, he's from my hometown of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He played his college golf at LSU, where he teamed with David Toms and the rest of his teammates. They won the '86. SEC Championship. Bob had 11 career top 10 finishes while he was in college. He won the Pennsylvania State Championship in back-to-back years in 84 and 85. He turned pro in 87, played on the Corn Ferry PGA, and Champions Tours. He had five top 10 finishes his rookie year on the Corn Ferry Tour, including a second place finish at the El Paso Open. Got his first win in 1991 at the Fort Wayne Open. He had five top 10 finishes in 94, three more in 97. In all, he's finished in the top 10 27 times. And for baseball fans out there, you're going to remember his father, Bob Friend Sr., pitched in the major leagues from 1951 to 1966, mostly with the Pittsburgh Pirates and was a key member of their 1960 World Championship team that beat the New York Yankees. Bob was also named the, the Leukemia Lymphoma Society Man of the Year last year for the amount of money he was able to raise for that charity. And like I said, I couldn't be more honored. He's back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Bob, how are you, my friend? Thanks for coming back on the show.
0: Well, Chris, I'm always delighted to be with you, and uh, I'm just a little bit bummed out that, uh, my goodness, you got me following Hal Sutton. I mean, that uh, that hurts
1: my feelings. <laughs> it shouldn't. You're yeah, a player in can your can own right. You, you don't back up to anybody. follow
0: that? Be the right club today. How do I follow that?
1: <laughs> well, you certainly had a lot of great moments out on the tour, and we're going to talk about some of them here in a minute, but. Bob, I want to start um with your memories of playing at the Players Championship. You played in that golf tournament back in 99, and I tell you what, if it wasn't for a tough third round, you might have won the darn thing. Your final round 70 well. was the sec- second best final round, and you know, take that take that third round out, Bob. You're only two shots behind well, it- David Duvall,
0: So, that's true, but if, if and buts were candy and nuts, every day would be Christmas. You know, it was, uh, it was, you know, that was a 99. And, uh, you know, the fact is that I was, I was really, really struggling with my ball strike most of the year. Um, I had made some changes towards the end of, of 1998. And, you know, I just, I really just wasn't hitting the ball well. I played my Tuesday practice on Paul and He and I both worked with John Redmond, a um, longtime teacher of Paul and myself. And a number of other guys out there on tour. And I just quite, I couldn't quite get it figured out. And so I ended up, uh, at the players, I shot 74, uh, the first round, uh, which was two over par. And then on the, uh, the second round, I actually made a hole in one on the eighth hole there. I think they had one before wow. there this week. Um, made a hole in one there with from 220. With well, a 4 I ended up shooting 69 and got myself way up there. Actually, I was paired with Lee Westwood on Saturday. And then, uh, you know, the winds came, you know. And, and what will happen at TPC Stadium is that uh, the golf course has a tendency to expose you. Uh, it is a wonderful test of golf. For those of your listeners that haven't played it, I strongly urge them to go down there and play it or go up there and play it, depending on where they live. Um, it is a tremendous test of golf, but the wind blew about 25 miles an hour on Saturday. And the truth be told, I shot 87. Uh, there are about 12, 12, 15 guys that did not break 80. Uh, and I, you know, somebody had to be the high man of the day. And I was, I don't know if I want to say I was proud to take that mantle, but I was the high man of the day. And, um, you know, I just after I shot, obviously it was disappointing and discouraging, but I just had not hit the ball very well. And, uh, I went out on Sunday and, uh, I made a determination, uh, that I was not going to finish last in the golf tournament. I went off on Sunday. I was, uh, I was last. I was, I was in, I was in last place going into Sunday and I went off in a once and the PGA tour, uh, allows you to either play by yourself with a walking score or you can play with a marker. And most guys, such as myself, you want to play with, you're just going to play by yourself and, you know, have a walking score go around with you and, uh, ended up shooting 70, which was 2 under par. And it was the, uh, it was the second low round of the day. Only Fred couples beat me that day and I did not finish uh in last question. I think I finished like 52nd or something like that, but it was, you know, it was one of those things where, um, you know, it was embarrassing, but you know, at the end of the day too, I've, I've never no card in a tournament in my entire life. And, uh, you know, as, as embarrassed as I was, I actually stole, uh, there were a couple guys down there from the Pittsburgh papers, Jerry Dulac and Mike Duderich, who were from the Pittsburgh Post Gazette and the Pittsburgh Tribune Review at the time. When I came out of the scoring tent, uh, you know, they just kind of looked at me and they were staring at their shoes. I just walked right up to them and said, what do you guys want to know? And so, you know, you have to take the good with the bad. Um, but it was a, it was a, it was a pleasure to be out there. It was a pleasure to play. Just wish I would have played a little bit better, uh, on Saturday, but it was, uh, you know, I, if I, if I had a, you know, my career, if I go and take a look at it, I was very blessed. I should have won on the PGA tour. I lost in the sudden death playoff at Bell Canadian Open to Billy Andrade in, in 98. Um, but you know, I just, if you go back and take a look at it, I'm 57 years old now just to think about some of the friendships that I've made through the years and all the, all the tremendous players, uh, that I played with. Uh, in my career. I mean, literally, you sit there and you you look at some of the names that I've played with, including Hal Sutton. I actually played with Hal in a practice round in the 1984 US Open on Monday at uh, Wingfoot. When I was 20 years old, I qualified for US Open. I actually played my Monday practice round with Hal. And, uh, you know, I've known Hal for years. Uh, obviously, went to LSU and David Toms and I were good friends. And, um, you know, Hal is just, uh, you know, he's not only is he a legend in the game of golf is a legend in Louisiana, and he's just one of the best gentlemen you ever meet.
1: I want to get your thoughts as a guy that uh that played in a golf tournament. Could could you have ever imagined a time when a guy would stand on the sixth tee and blast it across the lake? Talking about the Arnold Palmer Invitational. Talking about Bay Hill. Talk about Bryson DeChambeau and his tee shot on six. He pulls that ball a little bit further left. Maybe it's a little bit higher. He, he may be putting for double eagle. No, what are your it, thoughts it, it about what you saw?
0: Well, I mean, obviously, number one, I mean, this is the guy is, you know, he is transforming. He's transformed himself. And what I what I see and I listen to the interview with Hal and Hal is exactly right. What's What's going to happen to some very, very good accomplished players is that a lot of guys are going to start chasing the maximum distance. Uh, you know, to, to try to get to where Bryson D. Chambeau is. And the fact is, they just, they can't all do it. Um, I'll give you a great example. You know, Ian Baker Fench, because, uh, because both of our names, because both of our names, uh, you know, begin with the letter F, our lockers are very close to each other. And so Ian and myself actually became very, very close friends, uh, you know, through the years, just because we were always with each other and, you know, near the similar locker. And so finally, um, you know, one year, actually in 98, I was out putting, uh, at Westchester and Ian was headed up to the broadcast booth and, uh, you know, he stopped by and he watched me get some putting. I had missed the cuts that week and he just, he came in and, um, you know, he just said, Hey, let me, you know, look what you're doing with the putting. And we started talking. And I just said, look, I got to ask you something. Said, what, what happened to you? Now, if that, if your, if your listeners are familiar, I mean, Ian Baker Finch won the 1991 open championship. And he was one of the rising stars in the world of golf. Good-looking guy, wonderful guy. But his forte was that he could drive the golf ball straighter than you could point. And he was a great putter. And so what, what he described to me is exactly what I see that's happening. And I hope it doesn't happen to Rory McIlroy. he said, you know, he said, this is what happened. He said, you know, he said, I win the Open Championship. And he said, and all of a sudden, I am now getting the premier pairings in golf. He said, I'm paired with Greg Norman. I'm paired with Nick Price. I'm paired with John Daly. I'm paired with Fred Couples. I'm paired with all of these guys, and they're all hitting at 40 yards by me. Now, what you understand back in the early 90s, 40 yards by another player on the PGA Tour is huge because you didn't have the Pro V1 golf ball, and the Pro V1 golf ball is designed that if you have a swing speed north of 112 miles an hour, you pick up explosive distance. Uh, if your swing speed is 108, you pick up a little bit of distance. Well, back in the 90s, you know, most of us are playing the Torbalada golf ball, uh, which, you know, it basically, if you hit the ball a long way, the ball went a long way, and if you didn't, it didn't. Um, and so what he said, he said, I, I, he said, these guy's hitting the ball 30, 40 yards by me, and he says, I went on a search for more distance. And he said, what happened was, he said, I lost I lost my golf swing. He said, I, I lost my, Hal made a great comment. I lost my identity. And he said, I, I, you know, tried to get the ball. The club had deeper in my back swing, playing more rotary, to pick up more power. And then I not only did I not pick up more power, I started hitting the ball all over the place. And then when I went back, looked for my old swing, he said, I basically lost all my confidence. And he'd be the first one to tell you that, if he goes and he plays with his mates, as he calls him, because he's an Aussie, if I go and I play with my mates, I'm going to shoot 65. He said, as soon as I hear these words, now on the tee, Ian Baker Finch, he says, I, I, he said, I can't drive it in the ocean at high tide. He said, I lost all my confidence and then fear crept in. What I would hate to see, because Bryson is, Bryson's his own player. Um, I would hate to see a young guy like, like Roy McElroy. Going to do and make change dramatic changes to his golf swing to try to pick up that next you know fifteen twenty thirty forty yards to a guy that's already immensely long, and then next thing you know, he loses it, fades away, and we never hear from him again. Um, I think that what Bryson's doing, I think that he is he has transformed his body and uh you know he's a very obviously a very bright guy and look he's just this is this is the nature of the game right now um you know you still have to be able to put the ball you still able to pitch and chip the ball but the fact is is that you you get out there and if you can drive it 375 yards why would you not try to do that on every single hole and that's that's kind of where we are the good news is it's exciting the fans love it it's great for television but I don't necessarily know if it's in the long run if it's great for the game. I think that uh, I think that the ball needs to I think the need USGA needs to uh, take a serious look at increasing the spin rate of the golf ball to try to reel in and reel back the distance a little bit. I think that uh, I don't know if there's a bifurcation of the rules or whatnot, but I think if you take a look at the spin rate, on the golf ball, I don't think, I think that you can continue to have the same ball that the amateurs play, that the professionals play, and it's not going to make that much of a difference to the amateurs, but the guys with the higher swing speeds, the, the harder you hit a golf ball with a higher spin rate, the, sh- the higher the ball goes and more the ball will curve. And so for the amateurs, I don't think that solution would really affect them too much, but I think that, uh, you know, when you, when you see these guys driving the ball 345, 375 yards long, it kind of makes some of these golf courses obsolete.
1: Tom, did you ever get caught up in the in the thought of trying to, you know, chase distance? Was that ever something that, you know, you had to deal with? And and if not, I mean, how did you block that out and just, you know, be Bob Friend?
0: Well, I did. I actually did. You know, when I uh, I, I played uh, five years on the PGA Tour in 92 and 93, the 98, 99, and 2000, and I lost my card in 2000. And uh I was um, fully exempt on the Corn Ferry Tour for 2001. And Brett Quigley, who, you know, uh, he he won in Morocco last year on PGA Tour Champions in 2020, by my close friend. We did a lot. We played a lot of practice rounds together. He, we were running mates. And uh, Brett was conditionally exempt on the PGA Tour in 2001. And we played together in a tournament in Arkansas. And a a big golf course called Diamante. And so I was there and I'd started working with Jim Sutty at the time. And I was really worrying, I was really working on being able to shape the ball from left to right, being, being better at moving the ball from left to right. Really wasn't so much distance as it was trying to, as it was trying to, you know, work on my shape. Cause I was not a good fader of the golf ball. So I, I always did everything a little bit from right to left. And so I felt that in order to get better, I needed to be able to work the ball both ways. And so, uh, Brett and I played a practice run together in Arkansas. Now, the thing is, my swing speed at my, at my peak or my prime was about 108 miles an hour. I mean, obviously there's a lot of people that would kill for that, but PGA, PGA's tour standards, it is, you know, that's, that's average or maybe a little bit below average. And so I go out there, and I'm playing with Brett. And this is when the Pro V1 ball had just come out. And Brett always hit the ball about 10 yards past me. And we get out there, and he's hitting the ball 30, 40 yards past me. And I am just – I'm standing on him. I mean, I can – I'm killing it, and I'm hitting it solidly. And he's still – he is still hitting the ball 30, 40 yards by me. And so basically what it was, it's basically, as I said, if you have a swing speed – if you have a swing speed that is north of 112 miles an hour, uh, you're going to get explosive distance. Well, mine was 108, Brett's was around 115. And so hence he picked up the explosive distance. So I actually for that year, I, I, you know, worked on trying to hit the ball longer Then finally I just like, you know what? This is not me. You know, my, my forte is I'm a great wedge player. I'm a great putter and I drive the ball straighter than you could point. And I kind of lost that a little bit. Um, and then I, I ended up getting it back later, uh, in 2003, but that really, you know, by that time I had kind of lost the so-called fire. I just didn't, I didn't feel like I wanted to go out there and hit balls on the rock pile for six, eight hours a day. I had three kids and wasn't playing well. And so at that time I decided at the age of 40 that I was, you know, going to do other things, which is what I did. Um, but I can tell you, I, I, I'm very concerned about what I read with Rory. And what I saw with his interviews regarding what he did this past week at the players, just because I would hate to see such a talent as that, who who hit the ball so long um, that, you know, he goes and he's, t- he's looking for this explosive, super long distance. And, you know, we ended up, we ended up, we, we lose something that is really special because I think he's a really special player. And uh, I would hate to see that. I would hate to see that happen. But it's very easy. It's very easy. To, uh, to get caught up in the distance because that's all anybody's talking about. But I think what Hal said is very, very, uh, it, it's very, very on the mark. Um, you have to be who you are. And I think that, uh, a lot of these players going after this explosive distance, trying to be Bryson D. Shampoo, I just don't think it's going to work out well for them.
1: Bob, I want to uh, switch gears a little bit to uh, another memory for you. And you recently posted uh, a picture of you playing with Mr. Palmer and, 70, and Seve at what was the Bay Hill Invitational at the time. We know it's the Arnold Palmer Invitational now. And when I look back at that tournament, you played better than both of them. I bet no one I gallery notice because everyone was focused on getting a glimpse of those two legends. But what was it like for you playing in between those two guys?
0: Well, I mean, it was, I had played, I had known Arnold, uh, since I was a young kid. My dad, obviously, re- related, you know, related to my father's baseball career. So he and Arnold, obviously professional athletes at the pinnacle of their sport, basically about the same time. Um, so I had known Arnold since I was a kid and I had played my 1994 practice round at Oakmont with him on Monday. Um, so I went out on Tuesday of the Bay Hill Invitational. Uh, with actually playing with Paul Azner again, because John Redden was following us around and, you know, working with both of us, work on little pitches and, and working on trajectories. And we get done playing. And so, uh, you know, we go, Paul and I, we go into the players dining area there at Bay Hill. And then uh, it's about 1231 o'clock and the, the rules officials go and they put a stack of, you know, tea, uh, tea sheets down on each of the tables. And we pick one up and looking and Zinger looks and says, Oh my gosh, friendly, you've got, the, you've got the king and Sevy this week. And I'm like, oh my God, you got to be kidding me. Now I can tell you, you know, I was, I wasn't even, I wasn't even an afterthought when you compare those two guys, but I know that Mr. Palmer liked me. We're both, you know, Pittsburgh guys, Latrobe guys, Western Pennsylvania guys. And uh, I knew that that was him, you know, saying, Hey, I want to put a Bobby friend and wouldn't it be fun if we had in there too? So I, I know that he had a hand in it. Um, it was awesome. I mean, again, that's, that's one of the things that you talk about a career that now like I said, I would have liked to have won on the PGA tour. That's one of the things that to believe me, it honestly it still bothers me. Um you know, it still bothers really? me that I felt that I should oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Still bothers me. Um I think that you sit there and you, you give your life to it and you work as hard as I did. Um and then you know you and careers come to an end and it's not like I'm you know sitting here crying in my soup. Uh, about a career it it was a nice career I had a blast a lot of great memories a lot of great friends but I just if I had a regret uh, I know that I had enough game to win out there and I should have Canadian Open was my best opportunity but I ended up you know with with three or four top 10 finishes I had led uh, the New England Classic my rookie year after one round shot 64 there and I had led the Byron uh, the Byron Nelson after the first round shot 63 the first round there um, you know, and had played well at the Buick Southern Challenge, was tied to the lead back in my rookie year 1992 at, at, at Callaway Garden. So I had opportunities. I should have won. Um, but you know, you get out there and you know, you're paired with Arnold Palmer and Stevie Ballesteros, and it is just, it's absolutely, you know, amazing. I mean, Arnold is just every everything that you hear about him is exactly what he is. He's a man's man. Uh, looks you in the eye, gives you a firm handshake and, and treated everybody with respect out there. Uh, you know, his game was, his game was such where at the time he was 69 years old, but he hit everything at every single flag. And no matter what club, no matter where the whole location was cut. And, uh, I remember, you know, I, I didn't, when I was on tour, I didn't, I never drank when I was on the road. I'm a, you know, I'm from Pittsburgh. So, you know, we drink beer and I'd have, a, I'd be on the road for three or four weeks and come back and relax, go to some pirate games with some friends. We'd have some beers at the ball game, but you know nothing, nothing crazy. Uh, but when I was on tour, when I was on the road, I never drank. And so we played late on Thursday. We play late in the evening. and We get done, and uh we finish. And Arnold in the scoring tent slaps me in the back, looks me in the eye, and he says, "What do you say we go in and get a couple of Rolling Rocks?" Well, normally my my routine would be to head to the range and hit hit you know maybe a bucket of balls or so and just kind of warm down, and then go to the hotel and quick dinner shower and get ready for the early tea time the next day. Well Arnold Arnold Palmer asks you to have a beer, you have a beer. So I went in there, we had a beer, shared a rolling rock and had a nice evening and said goodbye. The next morning on Friday, uh, you know, we went out, we played, we played the uh we played the back nine first, so we finished on number nine. And we got done on number nine and, you know, Arnold again slapped me on the back and here it is and now it's like around one o'clock in the afternoon. And he says, you know, let's go get a rolling rock. And of course, I'm not going <laughs> to turn down Arnold Palmer. I said, sure. So we went in there, and we were having our rolling rock. And the two things I'll never forget, you know, we were sitting there, and, and I was always brought up by my dad to take your hat off when you come indoors. Arnold Palmer was a huge, huge proponent of ha- gentlemen have to have their hats off when they come inside. And so we're sitting there, we were at the bar there in the men's locker room. You know, we players only, and Curtis, who was the uh, locker room attendant, Served us a couple of rolling rocks. And as we're sitting there talking and having our beer, a couple of guys walk in with a hat. And Arnold looks at me and he just said, Boy, I tell you what, he said, These guys, he said, I don't care who your sponsor is and I don't care, but you've got to take your hat off when you come indoors. And I said, Yeah, you know, you know, Mr. Palmer, I agree. I said, I, I got to ask you something. I said, You know, I know you didn't play as well as you wanted to. I said, but I noticed, I said, you hit everything at every single flag stick, no matter where the hole was cut, no matter what club you had. I said, it had in your hand. I said, is that how you played in your prime? He says, yeah. He said, absolutely. He says, I could not. He said, I could not get my eye off of that hole. He said, I didn't. It just, to me, he said, I just could not get myself to away from it. He said, look, he said, I won seven major championships playing that way. And he said, I won over 60 tournaments on the PGA Tour. And then he winked at me, said, you know, had I played like our good friend from Ohio, a little more conservatively, especially in those majors, I probably would have won three or four more of them. He said, but that just wasn't my style. And, uh, you know, I'll take that with me forever. I mean, just to sit there and, and talk to, you know, the greatest name in the history of the game of golf and the greatest style in the game of golf. And just, uh, you know, it was a special two days. And then with Seve, Seve was, you know his game he was struggling with his game he was really loose with the driver, but he hit some amazing short game shots. I'll never forget the the shot on the tenth green. uh early in the morning, the second round he had buried it it was a it was a it was a fried egg in the greenside bunker left. The pin was cut four paces on and four paces from the left and Arnold and I were standing right there next to each other, watching Seve hit the shot Now, Seve only used one sandwich he had a fifty six degree sandwich he didn't have a sixty he didn't have a sixty four he had a pitching wedge and he had a 56 degree sand wedge in his bag. And he gets in there and he hits this shot and the sand explodes. The ball pops out of a buried lie, and the ball took one hop and stopped. And Arnold just just kind of jerked and looked at me He said, "Have you ever seen anything like that?" I said, "I haven't." How about you? He said, "I've never seen that." You know. So I got to see. I got to. I was paired with the greatest name in the history of the game of golf. And uh, you know, one of the one of the greatest names in the history of the game of golf, certainly in Europe they would say that he is. And um, you know, it was it was just an amazing amazing experience, Chris.
1: And speaking of the 70, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe he used a reverse case setup on the T, which is something I've tried to adopt in my setup in my drive. Did did you see that? Was that the way he was set up on his driver and do you think oh, that's you know, something we should always do?
0: Absolutely. I think that, uh, you're talking in golf, golf instruction. I think that the, I, I don't think, I know for a fact that the way you swing the golf club is built around grip, posture, ball position, and alignment. Those four things alone are going to dictate how you swing the golf club. And the reverse K posture, let's just say for, you know, you might have, you have some left handers in your, in your audience listening. The reverse K for a right handed player is where you take, you address the golf ball and you you bump your hip towards the target. It's not a weight transfer. It's your hip is your hip is moved about two inches Your your hip is moved about two inches towards the target. By doing that, your left leg is straight and your right leg and your upper torso make what looks like what's called a reverse K. Is what you're referred to. So by bumping your hip towards the target by about an inch or two, then you won't you want to take two aspirin. You don't want to take the whole bottle. By bumping your hip slightly towards the target, what that does is that tilts your spine slightly towards your right leg. And so then, what you're able to do from that position, instead of uh, instead of a weight transfer, instead of swaying off the golf ball to tr- get behind the golf ball, you all you literally are doing with that spine tilted slightly back towards your right leg is you just coil, and your upper body is automatically turned over your right leg. What a lot of amateurs have a problem with is that when they have neutral hips, your spine is straight up and straight down, and it is impossible for you to turn behind the golf ball. So most players who have neutral hips at address will do one of two things. They will either do a, what is a lot of people just in, in layman's terms called a reverse pivot, where they turn on the ball, and then when they change direction, their weight automatically goes backwards and they finish on the right leg, or when they address the golf ball with neutral hips, the first move that they do is that they sway back to the right side to try to load into the right side and turn behind the golf ball, both of which are terrible. So the reverse K I I'm a uh, other than wedges, I'm a huge proponent of the reverse K and every single full shot that you have because it allows you simply to rotate around your spine and you're automatically near your right side.
1: Bob, one more before I let you go as a weekend hacker. But one of the things I think we do to ourselves, probably because of ego, is when we're going to go out and play, we look at it and we say, "Well, you know what? I-, I can play from the blue tees," and then we hack it around and we and, and we shoot what we shoot, which is way more than what we should, um, instead of trying to make the game more fun by playing a more appropriate tee, whatever it is—white tee, the gold tee, whatever. You notice, for for amateurs like me. That we do ourselves a disservice and we make the game harder than it should be, because we can't we can't sort of get over ourselves. But with with which tee we should be hitting from?
0: Absolutely, you should play the you should play the forward tees. I mean, look, I'm 57 and I'm I'm very blessed and a long time member at Oakmont. I, I have not played championship tees at Oakmont in probably 10 years. I have no desire to go back and get my brains beaten at. Uh, you know, the golf course itself is, is hard enough as it is. So I play from the men's tee, which at Oakmont's about 6,600 yards long. There's nothing wrong. This is why you have multiple sets of tees. One of the things that I did when I was on tour with Bob Rotella and, and I worked with Bob from 92 and up until this day, I can still give him a call anytime and talk to him. Uh, don't have much use for it but now with, with real estate and a, a realist, my real estate career. Uh, but one of the things that Bob Rotella and I always spoke about was because of the difficulty of Oakmont, um, it's very rare that you go out there and, you know, tee it up and shoot 62 or 63 or 64. And so what Rotella would ask me to do is during my weeks off when I was not playing is I would take three days off and I would relax. I wouldn't do anything. I would go to a pirate game. I'd relax. I'd just hang out, hang out in the yard, hang out with my kids, whatever. And then I would, the last four days of a week off. I would get back into it, and I would start practicing. But one of the things that Rotella always asked me to do, he said, the golf course is too damn hard. He said, you're never going to get used to making a lot of birdies when you play there. He said, so I want you to play, when you are home, at least one round from the ladies' tees. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. He said, no. He said, I want you to get up there, and I want you to play from the ladies' tees. And I want you to just get used to making birdies and, and, and driving the ball along and knocking it on par fives and two and, and having wedges in your hand all day long. He said, I want you to play at least one round every time you're home from the ladies teeth. The point is, the point is that the game is meant to be fun. It's meant to be fun. And I think that you definitely do yourself a disservice by going back and beating your brains in. By the back teeth. In the first place, the average amateur drives the ball about two hundred and twenty yards. Uh, how many times have you heard somebody say, Oh yeah, I know a guy hits at three hundred? I'm like, uh, no, you really don't. You know somebody that might hit at two sixty, but no, you don't know anybody hits at three hundred yards. So the, the the point is that you you know, you want to have maximum enjoyment of the game. There's nothing wrong with going out there and playing a golf course at six thousand yards and having short irons in it and making a few birdies. And shooting 72 and shooting 75 and breaking 80 for the first time. There's no embarrassment about that. You know, the game is supposed to be supposed to be played. Don't beat your brains in. Go play the appropriate tees. Again, the guys on tour, believe me, you know, you don't see a whole lot of guys on the Champions Tour. When they're home and like these guys might be at Whisper Rock, they might be at Bay Hill or whatnot. You don't see the John Cooks uh, going back there all the way back. They play their appropriate tees, And these were some of the best players in the world. Guarantee if you had asked Hal Sutton the same thing, Hal's not going back and playing 7,500 yards. Hal's probably playing about 5,800 yards, which is, again, that's the appropriate T for his age, my age, and for the amateurs listening. The appropriate T for you is, is likely, you know, 62, 6300 yards long. There's nothing wrong with that.
1: Bob, before I let you go, give me an update on, uh, you know, how's your, your wonderful wife, Claire, and your kids?
0: Everybody is good. Yeah. We, uh, Claire and I just celebrated. We've been married about a year and a half now. She's still putting up with me. Very patient woman. And, uh, my oldest son, Charlie is out in Montana and he's working for a company called Granite Equity Partners. My daughter, Libby is in Denver and she's teaching second grade. And my youngest is finishing his final year at uh, Jefferson State Community College down in Alabama. He's playing uh, on a golf scholarship down there. It's a junior college. And his coach is actually Mike Bracken, and Mike actually caddied for Freddie Funk on the Champions Tour, and Mike is actually currently caddying for Scott Perplank. For so he's a men's golf coach there, uh like three quarters of the time, and the other quarter of the time, he actually caddies out on the Champions Tour. So he's uh, Andrew's doing well, he's loaded with talent, and he's getting there. So it's one of those things, where everybody matures at different levels, different times, and Andrew's going to be a late bloomer, but he's... uh if I had the talent that he has, uh has, I probably would have made fifty million on tour.
1: <laughs> ah, that's fantastic. Good for all of them. Bob, remind our listeners how they can stay up to date with all the great things you're doing now and uh follow you whether it's it's online or it's on social media.
0: Well, I actually got off of Twitter. I actually had a I actually got I got annoyed with the quote unquote the uh the impingement of free speech. I might go back but right now, I just I got a little aggravated with everybody being censored and everything else. So I thought, you know what? That's not really for me. But uh, I, I I don't do much. The, well, I tell you what I do. I you go on the Facebook. I do a lot of things for real estate. I'm the manager for the Howard Hanna office in Squirrel Hill. Howard Hanna is the third largest real estate company in the United States. And uh, we're in 11 states, and we're the third largest. So wherever we go, we control the market. Uh, it's a wonderful company. It's what's called a fully stacked. Real estate company where we have our own real estate agents to buy and sell properties. Uh, we have our own mortgage company. We have our own insurance company and we have our own title and settlement company. So Howard Hanna real estate and, uh, Squirrel Hill office. And if you venture on the Facebook every now and then, you'll, you'll see me doing recruiting videos talking about real estate and talking about listings and sales.
1: Well, Bob, I can't thank you enough for coming back for a 15th time tonight. Uh, you're an all-timer with me, my friend. I can't thank you enough for being generous with your time and, and uh, sharing more of your stories with us. You're fantastic.
0: Well, Chris, it's always a pleasure talking with you. Thank you very much. Uh, all the men and women in the armed services all around the country, thank you for your service. And, Chris, we need to get an Oakmont trip. We need to get out to the big course here, maybe this fall after the U.S. Amateur.
1: I'd love that, my friend. You don't have to ask me twice. So let's put that together. Can't wait.
0: <laughs> well, let's let's stay let's stay in touch and get that. We've got the U.S. Amateur at Oakmont this year, then the Open coming back in 2025. So let's see if we can do something like in early October at Oakmont. Okay.
1: All right, sounds good to me, my friend. Stay safe up there, Bob. All the best to you and your family. We'll catch up soon. Cheers, Chris. Thank you. See you, Bob. That's a great, Bob friend. Hey, look, play out at Oakmont with Bob Friend. Are you kidding me? You don't have to ask me twice about that one. Holy cow. What a great day that would be. Hopefully we can make that happen. All right, my friends. It is time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the Tea. My sincere thanks go out again to Tom Patrick, Hal Sutton, and Bob Friend for joining me tonight. Folks, please check out our website, nextonthetea.net to keep up to date with what our guest schedule looks like. And scheduled to join me next week are going to be Damon Hack from the Golf Channel. Really looking forward to having Damon as part of the show again next week. Nancy Corsellino, who is one of the most decorated teachers in the LPGA. She'll be making her TNT debut, as will Bob Winskowitz, who is the founder and creator of Squares Golf Shoes. And again, folks, I went after Squares because I thought their shoes were outstanding and uh, a new partnership with Bob this year. So really looking forward to having him on the show to talk about the technology and how you can get a few more distance from having a better shoe. Folks, you can stream this show as a podcast on a number of great podcasting sites. We are all over the net. You can find us on podcast.co, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Audioboom, Player.fm, and Radio.com. If you've got a favorite podcasting site that you like to stream shows online or as an app on your phone so you can take us with you everywhere you go, you're probably going to find us on it. And folks, if you enjoy the show, please do me a favor and go online to podcastmagazine.com and vote for their show and their Hot 50 list. When you click on the on the link, right, you go to podcastmagazine.com, you're going to see Hot 50 at the top. If you click on that, you're going to get a little drop down and then you'll see Hot 50 voting. Just put in the name of the show next on the T and my name, Chris Mascaro. I'd really appreciate your support. Folks, thank you again for choosing to listen to this show tonight. We really appreciate the fact that you continue to make Next on the Tee a part of your golfing content. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends.